Yeah, it's good to see you all. Um, some of you I haven't seen in probably over a month. And I think the first comment was, you look really tan. Like, yes, I have gotten a, sh- a few shades of browner since the last time you saw me. And uh, I remember um, when I was younger, my, we used to live in Michigan. And in the summertime, it's just really hot. And we lived in an apartment complex with a pool. So every single day I was at the pool and I would come home and my dad would greet me and he would say, hello, my African son. And he was just, we are just really dark. And so Micah has inherited my genes. So if you see another little brown boy running around, chances are that's my son. Um, but nevertheless, it's, it's really good being here with you again. It's really good to be back from holidays. I think sometimes um, you can almost spend too much time in holidays. So it's nice to be back here um, spending time with you. As you can see the slide, um, we're doing a series of sermons um, on the seven deadly sins or the seven uh, deadly vices. And uh, this afternoon we'll be covering uh, greed and gluttony. Initially I was going to cover lust as well, but it just got way too much. And so Jin Ha will be covering that topic uh, next week. And so today will be greed and gluttony. Now um, an intro to these uh, seven deadly sins is that, let me flick this on. This list was originally compiled by um, an Egyptian monk by the name of Evagrius, and he had a list of eight vices, and he kind of taught that from every, or these eight vices are the root of every other sin or every other vice that's known to man, and uh, the list is right there. Um, This is back in the fourth century. You fast forward a couple hundred years, and Gregory, Pope Gregory the Great, he distilled that eight list, uh, that eight uh, that number eight down to seven uh, vices, and as you can see, he kind of put sadness and kind of folded it into um, sloth. And can you imagine back in the day when they would say that being sad is a great sin? And it's kind of like, how do you actually define that? And so I think Pope Gregory looked at that and said, "Well, let's kind of fold that into a sloth." And um, basically, he kind of uh, also combined, I believe, vainglory and pride, and uh, I believe he added. I want to say envy there. And so here we have these seven vices. And throughout history, uh, this, this list has informed Catholic theology. It really influences uh, confessional time for the Catholic Church. And for the Protestant pulpit, it's preached um, every now and then as it is today. Um, through popular culture as well, it has really influenced society. Uh, artwork has been kind of dedicated to the seven deadly sins. And this was kind of more the... Uh, PG version, as I was looking through some of the pictures online, I was kind of like, yeah, that's maybe not so appropriate to show at church. But uh, So it's informed art, um, also different films. I'm sure a while ago um, you would have at least come across this film. Um, and not only that, uh, there's a theory that the seven deadly sins are the premise for the show Gilligan's Island. And uh, basically the theory states that the seven characters represent or portray one of the seven deadly sins, and for three and a half years they're trying to get off this island, but because they embody these vices, they're never allowed to go anywhere. And it kind of, the show is a metaphor that depicts the hopelessness and the destitution that results from living out these vices in life. Um, You can Google it later on and have fun reading these different articles, but I thought it was interesting nevertheless. Um, in 2003, 2002 and 2003, the New York Public Library did a joint uh, project with Oxford Publishing, the Oxford Publishing House, and they produced seven books 
on these seven vices. And so they invited noted writers, scholars, and critics, and they were invited to offer a meditation on each of these topics. Later on, uh, these books were followed up by public lectures at the, uh, at the New York Public Library. And if you're interested, you can go on Amazon and you can check out these books. Or if you want the, to see them for free, you can go to the State Library. It was like the only library in this whole area where I could find these books. And I did a lot of searching, but um, if you want to go to the Redmond Berry Reading Room, they are there in Section B, I believe. Um, so just a few notes about these vices. Um, this list is man-made. If you look throughout Scripture, it's actually really hard to find each of these seven topics in one passage. Um, the sins were compiled and put together by different theologians and philosophers, and depending on which theologian or philosopher you read, you're going to learn something new about uh, that particular topic. So today we'll be covering greed and gluttony. Um, in 2008, there was a young man by the name of Armin uh, Heinrich, and he released an app on iTunes store on the iTunes store, and it was called "I Am Rich." Um, the cost of the app was nine hundred and ninety-nine dollars and ninety-nine cents. It's the most. Uh, it's the most you can charge anybody on the iTunes store. The red and here's the description of the app. The red icon on your iPhone or iPod will always remind you and others when you show it to them that you were able to afford this. It's a work of art that has no hidden function at all. In other words, the app does nothing. You push the button, the app opens up, and there's a red gem that shows up in front, of the, in front of a black background and shines and sparkles. So that color right here, that's basically what you see. <laughs> so the app was available for 24 hours before Apple pulled it off. But in those 24 hours, eight people bought it. Two of those eight people asked for a refund, but that still means that six people paid for the app. So not too bad. You make an app, you make $6,000, pretty good. And while this story, is a, this story is a bit comical of what greed can lead to, um, we remember different things throughout history where we see greed actually really impacting society. I'm sure you remember uh, different finance scandals such as Enron. And uh, I don't know if you guys were looking through the news back in the day, and this was like the biggest financial scandal that had kind of hit the world. And billions of dollars that were taken from employees, uh, people lost their jobs, uh, they lost health insurance, they lost their 401ks, or the Australian equivalent would be the super fund, um, and just lots of dishonesty that took place. And something that might hit a little bit more home to us, um, I don't know if you saw the uh, articles in the age uh, that had to do with the underpaid employees of Grilled, and so there are a lot of dubious contracts that are kind of given to these teenagers, and they're kind of underpaid here in Australia. Another one would be the handling of Dick Smith over the past few years. Um, basically, whoever bought and sold Dick Smith back in t uh, 2012 uh, made, I think, around $500 million, um, and just lots of interesting accounting that took place there has really affected the shareholders, and so there's kind of a bit of an uproar about what's taking place there. The list goes on and on. You can think of the GFC, where people lost their houses, lost their jobs, and there's kind of this spiral effect that took place. But today, I want to look at a couple passages that have to do that, that deal with greed to kind of get a broader perspective on a Christian worldview of approaching this idea of greed. And so if you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 12, 
and we're going to read verses 15 to 34. And I'll just kind of skim through the passage with you. Luke chapter 12, and we're going to read verses 15 to 34. starts out here where Jesus says, he went and joined himself, or excuse me, Luke chapter 12, verses 15. I went to the wrong passage. That's what happens when you come back from holidays. Here's how the story starts. And he, Jesus, said to them, take heed and beware of greed, for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of things which he owns. And he spoke a parable unto them. And I'm just going to narrate the parable to you as you read through it. There was a farmer, uh, there was a wealthy farmer who had had a good harvest. He thought to himself saying, what will I do because I have no room to bestow all of my harvest? And he said, this I will do. I will pull down my barns and I will build greater. And there I will bestow all of my fruits and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, You have many goods laid up for you, many years. Take ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then who will provide those things which you have, or who will benefit from those things that you've provided? So is he that lays up treasure for himself and and is not rich towards God. When you look at this story, and you look at the life of the farmer, I kind of ask myself the question, what wrong did this farmer do? He wasn't a dishonest person. He didn't embezzle. He didn't lie to anybody. He worked really hard, got a bountiful harvest, and he told himself, well, how do I take care of this? And when I look at the story, I almost think, he's being a good steward. The main point of the story, as Jesus kind of narrates this, is he's saying this man's primary concern is with himself and is with his own goods. If you actually count the number of personal pronouns that are used as this man is talking to himself, where he says, what shall I do with my harvest? What shall, what shall I do with my bountiful, uh, uh, my increase? He uses a personal pronoun 11 times. And at the end of this part, portion of passage, Jesus, says, give, or Jesus gives a definition of greed. Here's the definition. It's to treasure up goods for oneself while not being rich towards God. Kind of an odd definition. Treasuring up goods for oneself without being rich towards God. And when I read this passage, I kind of ask myself the question, what does it actually mean to be rich towards God? Jesus is going to answer this in just a moment. He continues on with with the story, picking up in verse 22. And Jesus said to his disciples, For this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Verse 24, Jesus gives an example of ravens. He says, look at the ravens, I take care of their needs. Verse 27, he says, consider the lilies, how they grow and how beautiful they are. God clothes the lilies. If he cares for them, certainly he cares for you. Verse 28 Jesus continues on and talks about how God clothes the grass of the field and how he will clothe each and every one of us. And so he ends this story in verse 29 and 30 by saying, Don't worry, God knows your needs and he wants to give you the, king- uh, he wants to give you the kingdom, so seek the kingdom. So here's a second definition of greed. 
It's to not let your emotional investment in your state or goods keep you from seeking God's kingdom. Continuing on, if you read it, verse 33 to 35, Jesus gives the solution to the issue of greed. So there are two things that he highlights, being rich in oneself and not being rich towards God, and letting your emotional investment in your goods uh, keep you from seeking God's kingdom. And so if we look at verse 33 to 35, he says, Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes nor moth destroys, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So here, Jesus gives the answer for what it means to be rich in God. He asks and he he talks to his disciples and he kind of says, I want you to prioritize God. What I like about the story is that Jesus' definition of greed is quite broad. Usually we kind of think of greed as being wealthy and having lots of money. But what I like about the story is that You can be a wealthy, greedy person, in the case of the farmer, or you can be a poor, greedy person, in the case of the person who's worrying about their clothes, their food, and just making it from day to day. And so Jesus' warning is, don't be rich in the world, um, don't be rich in the world and poor in the next, and make sure and prioritize God. I think there's a danger of greed that while desiring wealth and comfort, Uh, Those things give us freedom, power, and choice, but those things can also consume us. We can become aware of the costs of material possessions, but lose sight of the value of eternal realities. And so Jesus says, uh, consider consider these things. There's a uh, side note. I was reading through one of the commentaries, and there's a guy named Wiersbe, and he kind of gives this interesting caveat to seeking wealth and I think sometimes you can almost baptize greed and make it very Christian and he has this paragraph I just want to read to you he says it's a dangerous thing to use religion as a cover-up for acquiring wealth God's labor is certainly worth his hire but his motive for laboring must not be money that would make him a hireling and not a true shepherd I think sometimes in hopes of gaining control in hopes of seeking um, comfort it's possible to, rather than receiving freedom, experience slavery. And um, wealth, rather than becoming uh, a master of our wealth, becomes a master of us. In this story, Jesus kind of talks about worrying and meeting our needs as opposed to meeting the needs of God's kingdom. There's a quote by Corey Tembum, and she says, Worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. And so let us not be concerned with what money can buy, but rather let us cherish that, uh, those things uh, that money cannot buy. I remember uh, being really poor like a number of years ago. I mean, I, was just, I think I was making $500 a month. And uh, basically, because we, uh, we were doing mission work, they basically how to, uh, they provided housing and food. And uh, every now and then, I would make a list of things that I really wanted. Like, oh, you know, when I save up money, I really want to get that mountain bike. And I saved for a year to get that mountain bike. And uh, it was interesting because sometimes that list became all-consuming because it was kind of like, I've got this checklist. And if I just don't, if I can't get that thing, then I don't know if my life is complete. And I remember when I actually received that material possession, it became completely consuming. It was like, I got that mountain bike. And it was just kind of like, all right, I actually need to work on this thing. I, I have to work on this sermon. I have to work on this Bible study. I have to spend time with my family, or, but rather it was kind of like, 
well, I have this mountain bike, and so I'm just going to go spend some time doing this thing. And it's just interesting how the worries and the cares of this world can really replace uh, the concerns of God. It's interesting how the need and the want to just make it, uh, the need and the want to become stable and secure can be a massive destruction. There's this uh, letter that was sent out by Tim Cook. It was an open letter uh, by Apple. I don't know if you guys saw it. It had to do with safety and security. And I just thought it was such a great example of how the desire for safety and security um, is very expensive. It costs something else. Um, A few months ago, there was a mass shooting in San Bernardino, and the FBI had contacted... Uh, Tim uh, had contacted Apple and asked for sensitive material on a certain iPhone. And because of privacy regulation, Apple had to deny access to the FBI. And so in this letter, Tim Cook sends this out to the Internet and says, what should I do? I want to hear from you as customers. And so he's saying, the FBI wants a backdoor put into the next iOS system, and that way, if they need access, they can gain access. And Tim Cook is saying, I can do this. I can give safety and security to the world. And at the same time, it's going to cost you your privacy. So what would you have me do? And he's kind of in this ethical dilemma. So for those of you who have you know, iPhones, I think it's time to switch. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> the point is that safety and security and comfort compromises other things. And in this context, Jesus is saying, greed that motivates that safety and security compromises your faith compromises your relationship with God. But here's the thing. Greed is difficult to identify. When you actually read the letter, and let's say you talk to the person from the FBI who sent this request to Tim Cook, it's not completely unreasonable. It's actually very difficult to determine the motive of the government, and it's very difficult to determine the motive of our own desires and our own wants. So there's this litmus test that Jesus gives in this passage from Luke chapter 12, verses 15 to 31. And there are three things that I just want to summarize, whether it's from the story of the farmer, the story of worrying, or the teaching of worrying, or whether it's uh, Jesus' solution in terms of giving to the poor. Here's the litmus test. And basically, I just formed those sections into questions. So in the case of the farmer, am I rich in God? How much of God is occupying my life? Do I care for the cause, the work, the kingdom of God? Second question when it comes to worrying. Does my worrying keep me from connecting to God? Does my worry keep me from experiencing his presence in my life? Does my worry keep me from the work of God's kingdom? It's interesting how work can, worry can often cause doubt. And in this case, this question is a great way of, of uh, checking myself. Where am I with God? Thirdly, when it comes to giving to the poor... Uh, and becoming rich in the kingdom. How much or how willing am I to give to those who are in need? How often am I giving to those in need? I think if at any point where I ask myself these questions, and the answer to these is, well, I don't know how much of God is occupying my life, but a lot of my life is occupied by gaining other things, well, that's an indicator of where my heart is. And so at the end of this passage, Jesus says, where your heart is, or excuse me, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. These questions are a great way of determining where's your heart. I was talking to Brunwyn, because I, I know Brunwyn does a fair bit of, uh, of giving, and 
basically, I just for those of you who are thinking about this idea of greed and of giving, um, there are there are a few web or there are a few options of if you do actually want to give. There's a website here called uh, www.thelifeyoucansave.org, and basically it gives you different options of of uh, philanthropy. Um, they have uh, projects where they're giving to mothers, to children, to education, to infrastructure all around the world. And so it's a great way to get plugged in. Otherwise, if you want to get involved in something that's a bit more local, you can talk to Brunwyn as well. Um, she gave me a list of things. I think one was like uh, helping out um, mothers in St. Kilda and something to do with bras. And I was just kind of like, I'm sure it's a good cause. If you ladies want to help her out, go talk to Brunwyn. But um, Anyway, she's, she's actually involved in a lot of cool projects, so please talk to Bronwyn if in your mind you've ever thought, you know what, um, I do want to get plugged in. I think there were other things like um, the, the Wesley Church puts together Christmas boxes, um, and there's also the Roy Kim Ferrari Fund, so if you want to help out with that, you can come talk to me afterwards. Um, but I want to invite you to invite God into the decisions of your life, that when you're about to make a major decision, if you're about to make a major purchase, to write down what's in your life or just think about it as you pray and ask God this question, God, do I want this or do I need this? God, how does this fit in your plan? How does this fit in your kingdom? God, what passages of scripture can you read, what passages of scripture can I read and meditate on that can inform my decision? Invite God into the decisions of your life and do Uh, practice the litmus test. God, is this greed or is this um, a genuine need? The next thing that I want to talk about is gluttony. What is gluttony? Uh, I remember I used to, uh, there was a point in time in my life where I confused gluten and glutton. And uh, you can imagine the conflict of my soul when somebody put like a gluten steak in front of me. And uh, it tasted so good. No, anyway. Um, Thomas Aquinas in the Summa Theologiae wrote, Gluttony denotes not any desire of eating and drinking, but an inordinate desire, leaving the order of reason, wherein the good of moral virtue consists. In the Old Testament, there's this definition of greed, and I just thought it, this line right here was very interesting. Um, to be a glutton is to make light of something, to squander, to lavish. It's not understanding the value of that which you have, which primarily in this context is your body. And so there are a few passages where the word gluttony is used. And uh, for the second part, I'm just going to be giving you a lot of Bible verses. And so just bear with me here. In Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 19. Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, I will restore you and you will stand before me. If you utter what is precious and not what is worthless, and this is the word glutton, you shall be as my mouth. They will turn to you, and uh, you shall not turn to them. Here's another example, Lamentations chapter 1, verses 11. And basically, um, in the first chapter of Lamentations, the city of Jerusalem is kind of like calling out, and this is kind of like um, what Jerusalem would say, and the author of Lamentation kind of writes this out. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am gluttoned. I am despised. Um, And so it kind of gives this different perspective of of gluttony. Gluttony is not about necessarily, um, yeah, 
about eating. It's about understanding value. And what I like about this definition is that you can be a skinny glutton. And um, I think that's something that's really important to consider. In the New Testament, the word glutton is only used twice, both by the Pharisees to describe Jesus. And they say, Jesus is a glutton because he's spending time with sinners and tax collectors. And here's one of those verses in Luke chapter 7, verse 34. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. There's a bit of irony in this statement because they're saying Jesus doesn't understand value. But the reality is maybe he did understand value and he placed it on the right people. So if you continue on the New Testament, there are these only two instances where the word glutton is actually used. But if you look up another word, um, appetite, there are many hits on a search. And I want to look through a few passages that have to do with appetite. First, let's look at the definition here. Appetite has to do with the whole belly, the entire cavity. It, it, it has many usages, whether it's um, biological anatomy, but it also tries to communicate like an idea. So in other words, appetite is giving up to pleasures of the palate, uh, to gluttony. Um, appetite is also the innermost part of a man, the soul, heart as the seed of thoughtful feeling and choice. So it's basically where you decide who you are, what you like, what you want. Your very innermost being, the word um, appetite is kind of used in that context. And so, uh, in scripture, there are times where uh, the word is used this way. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 19, there are people whose end is destruction because their God is their belly or their appetite. This poses an interesting question because, basically, if we accept creation... What we are acknowledging is that God created mankind and he is the one who creates appetite. He is the one that creates desire. He is the one that creates that longing for something else. And so if we say gluttony or, the over, or appetite is wrong, it's sinful, it's a vice, then how does one reconcile those two things? And here in this passage, Paul says there are people who make their own appetite their God. In other words, they do not check or ask, excuse me, they are not checking their desires with God. And I think there's a difference here between what the Bible teaches about appetite and asceticism or becoming a monk and just kind of completely um, keeping yourself in extreme self-discipline and saying, oh, I have these desires I'm going to remain single. I'm not going to eat anything that tastes good. I need, I'm not going to have any desires or pleasures, and that way um, I can experience true freedom. The Bible actually teaches something slightly different. Being a glutton isn't about abstaining, or uh, avoiding gluttony is not about abstaining from the experience of pleasure. It's about prioritizing God over our desires and over our wants. Those desires uh, should be enjoyed, but... What God wants is for those um, taste buds, sensory um, ways of experiencing life to be a benefit to us rather than a hindrance. So basically, Paul is saying, don't allow your appetite to replace God. And there are moments when we really need God and we replace him with appetite. And I don't know if you can relate with me, but I just I wrote down a list of a few things where I kind of asked myself, when do I replace God with my appetite? 
there are moments where I need rest. There are moments where I need to unwind. There are moments where I've had a really busy day. It's been stressful. It's at the end of the, it's at the, end of the day. It's about 9 p.m. And it's like the best time to just sit down and say, God, I want to invite you into this time. I want to invite you into my life. And I just need to relax and unwind with you. Will you speak to me about my day? And the tendency is kind of like, but what do I really want? What, what desires in my, you know, what desire do I have? And I'm kind of like, well, I really kind of want to laugh right now. Like, you know, I feel kind of crummy. It'd be nice to watch some Jimmy Fallon. So, like, it's easy to pop up the computer, go on YouTube, and watch Jimmy Fallon. And it's like, it's kind of escaping what's happened during the day. And rather than inviting God into that moment, I'm kind of replacing God with a desire. And so the way to rewind is kind of just like watching YouTube. And I don't know if you can relate to that. There are also moments when I have a task or a responsibility, and rather than completing that task or responsibility, it's just easier to fulfill that appetite. Uh, I don't know if you went through this, but in university, during finals exam time, it's like when you have to turn in all the papers, when you have to do all the studying, there is just massive amounts of traffic on Facebook. It's kind of like, where does everybody find time to post these hilarious articles? And it's just kind of like, it is human nature to be like, I have to do this, I feel stressed, I'm going to go look at something else, and I'll be right back to it. And it's in those moments where God is saying, I have a task for you, invite me into that moment, and let me walk with you through that task, as opposed to escaping that task and gratifying appetite. And so here Paul says, don't let your desires dictate and determine the decisions that you make. Let me, let me step into that moment and walk with you through that. In Romans chapter 16, verses 17 and 18, there's this interesting passage that has to do with appetite. It says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Appetite and desire has a way of skewing our understanding of truth and our ability to determine truth. And so Paul says, if you follow your own desires, it becomes very difficult to invite God to tell you what is right because you already know what you want. And so Paul is saying, do not follow those who primarily put their appetite first. If you look in Luke chapter 1, verses 11 to 16, and you can turn in your Bibles there, there's a story of John the Baptist and his birth. And in this account, Luke talks about um, kind of like the daily habits of John the Baptist and how he was raised. And so if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 1, verses 11 to 16. And I'll narrate the story to you. Before John the Baptist is born, his dad, Zacharias, is kind of standing in the temple and an angel appears before Zacharias, or Zachariah, and he says, Your wife is about to become pregnant, and you're going to name your son John. And the angel then tells Zechariah how he should raise his son. So verse 15, the angel says, John will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother, mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel will turn to the Lord their God. And so here's the angel, and he says, The Holy Spirit is going to fill your son John 
So make sure you watch what he eats, watch what he drinks, or excuse me, watch what he drinks and how he lives his life. Uh, and so there's this idea that John had this life of incredible self-control because uh, basically um, in that tradition, in that culture, in that time, uh, the people drank. It was a normal part of their lives. And so here comes the angel and he says, your son is going to practice self-control and as a, as a result, he is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit which leads us into truth. He teaches us, he guides us, he reveals God's, uh, God's will and most importantly, he reveals Christ to us in our lives. And so, God gives this instruction as to how to experience God. If you look at, or if you think about the fruits of the Spirit, um, and we won't go there, but Galatians 5, verses 22 to 23, self-control is the last fruit of the Holy Spirit. And basically, it kind of teaches us and informs us of all the other aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. Love that is not tempered um, is not love. It becomes lust. And so, uh, that self-control is really, is a very, very real important aspect of experiencing God in His Spirit and the fruit of His Spirit. I like this teaching because here, hidden here, uh, hidden in this message is God's invitation to experience and find Himself. And He's saying, you want to experience my Spirit? Practice self-control. You will experience a part of me that um, you wouldn't experience otherwise. There's a passage here in John chapter 5, verse 30. Jesus says, I can do nothing of my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So here is Jesus, and he says, I do not... He's basically saying, I allow God to inform me what I should want, what I should do, what my desires should be. See, the idea behind this teaching is that it's impossible for us as finite beings to know what's best for us. And so it requires humility to acknowledge we could be wrong. And so in practicing self-control and in submitting our desires to God, we are allowing God to inform us what should be desired. As we allow God to inform us of truth, as we practice truth, we find satisfaction, we find God. And I think if you have kind of wondered, God, how do I know your truth? How do I know you? How do I find you? This is a great way of experiencing that. Try and practice self-control. See if you can do it on your own, how long it lasts. It's a complete different experience when you invite God into this process, and you get to experience him through this idea of temperance and self-control. The point of appetite is to acknowledge God in satisfying our desires. Acknowledging God means that there are boundaries in how we satisfy those desires. It means we trust God and that He has our and we trust that He has our best interest in mind. So rather than me telling you what is right, what is wrong, I invite you to think about your entertainment, to think about your way of relaxing, to think about your appetite, the things that make you happy. Invite God into each of those uh, activities, each of those moments. Pray, seek His Word, ask God, God, what would you have me do in this moment? You know, when I think about the different vices, I kind of think it's a very high calling, avoiding gluttony, avoiding greed. And there are some things that are just naturally ingrained in us. And I think how you understand and view sin will determine how you interact and fight and overcome it. Um, 
you know, our, the church has kind of gone through a transition of understanding sin, and I kind of just want to flush an idea out with you, and there's a question in the discussion questions that um, might be interesting for you to look through. But previously, the church has kind of looked at sin as a habit, something that you do. And if you don't want to become sinful or if you want to avoid sin, well, then you just avoid that habit, you avoid that action. But there, in the recent past, there's kind of been another view of sin as rather than looking at sin as a habit, looking at sin as a disease, looking at sin, looking at sin as a, something that's deeply ingrained in us. And if you look at it that way, um, overcoming a disease or dealing with a disease requires research. It requires understanding, therapy, and healing doesn't pl- take place overnight. If there's someone who, has, who is going through chemotherapy, you don't rebuke them or you don't lecture them if they're having a bad day. You don't say, oh, like, you know, get it together. You're supposed to smile all the time. You kind of understand that the person is, you know, going through massive change, going through massive pain, and you approach people differently. And so, um, yeah, I kind of like this uh, this perspective of sin being more of a disease as opposed to a habit. And, and I think the, the, the most important thing to consider when dealing with sin is to keep your eyes on the healer, Jesus Christ. There are things that are mysterious about disease that we don't quite understand, but one thing is certain, that Jesus is the healer. He wants us to come to him and to keep our eyes fixed on him. So as we deal with each other as sinners inside of the body of Christ, inside of the church, that we understand one another, that we care for one another, and that we can encourage each other to keep looking towards the healer. So may God bless you as you meditate on these things and as you discuss them. Um, I hope that uh, you're able to really um, internalize the different teachings. May God bless you.